I'm going to start us out just here with our second reading of the morning, which is two separate packages, uh, passages from Acts that I've smashed together. Here it is. They devoted themselves. This is the, the original church, the OG Jesus following church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They'd sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is, set, this is from Acts 4. That was Acts 2. So Acts 4. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all, and there was not a needy person among them. For as many as who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds from what it was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. We hear the voice of God in the reading of these ancient words and stories. Thanks be to God. All right, so this is the fourth week in the second half of our sermon series entitled The Post-Church Church, and we are real serious about this series because we feel we have something, some important things to say about this as people who are here doing the nitty-gritty work of reimagining church. Many of us, after having left evangelicalism, and some of us having watched it crumble before our very eyes. So people like us have big questions. What, what's spirituality and why does it matter? And how do we keep hold of any kind of quote unquote faith? And why would we even want to? And what are we to do now that we've mo- for the most part set aside certainty? And what good is church? They're weighty meaty questions. And so far we've discussed in this series, we've discussed rethinking our ideas about worship. And then the following week, Aurelia talked about the importance and the value of authenticity. And then Matthew talked to us about how in the post-church church, we're trying not to make enemies of other human beings, but instead to embody the ethos of Christ who never met a human enemy. We see him, of course, in the, in the, in the stories set boundaries at times, and we see him navigating conflict at times, but we don't see him in the scriptures doing anything that isn't based in love. Now, I hear a lot of people saying, just shut it down. Empty the pews, the institution is irreparable. And I hear that, I hear that. Every time I hear about some new abuse scandal or some fresh hell cooked up by white cis hetero patriarchy, I tend to agree with that sentiment, burn it down. And for sure, I have had the option to do that many times in the last 20 years that I've been renovating my faith. But then 
I pass through the emotions of anger and outrage and eye roll after eye roll <laughs> as I consider the question, why do we even need church anyway? And my answer always comes down to meal trains. Meal trains. Easy, simple answer. I believe meal trains are the Lord's work. They are perhaps the most simple and practical way we show up for each other when the going gets hard. I absolutely want to be a part of a community that values meal trains. Like when I have an unexpected health crisis or a loss or what have you, I absolutely want to have a robust community of folks who love me and care for me and help me when I'm at my lowest. And really that's my simplest answer. You, if you, you want to jump ship on church, fine, go ahead, but don't complain when you break your leg and no one's bringing you delicious white bean chili and coloring books. Meal trains are the kingdom of God in action. And I want to just point out that there seems to be a pervasive idea that meal trains are women's work. I want to push back on that. And I want to challenge the men in our community to step up in this area because meal trains are a little symbol of a larger picture thing. And that is a community that pays attention to one another and cares for one another. And I think we still need that in a post-church world. People are not done getting sick and losing loved ones and catching COVID and losing a job or going through a depression. And we have this simple, practical opportunity to practice love in tangible ways that in the end do matter and do make a real difference in our collective mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Amen? I hope I'm hearing those down there. Okay. I'll check your comments later. <laughs> Look, okay. The modern world... And civilized Western society is mostly highly individualized and anti-communal. We've talked about this before. The world, the modern, our, our society tells us to go it alone and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get yours. And it's a doggy dog world. You all know this. And so many of us are broken and wounded and traumatized that we just want to believe it. We want to believe it that we, so that we won't have to need anybody for anything. But when we can access any kind of maturity or a mature perspective. And when we can immerse ourselves in nature and bear witness to the ecological connectedness of the planet of which we are a part, and when we can let go of all the ego trappings and the societal conditioning, if we can elevate our perspective enough, so that we can just peek over the edge of our own trauma. We're able to learn and know in a deep way that we are all parts of a whole, that the Lord our God is one and we are all cells in God's body and what benefits one benefits the collective. We learn that vulnerability is not the weakness we were taught to think it was. Instead, it's a superpower that allows us to access greater and greater levels of love for ourselves and for other people. Like, oh, we realize we need one another. All the trite platitudes that we ever heard about how we're, you know, better together and how it takes a village, they're true. Now, if you ask any of the three of us, me, Matt, or Aurelia, we will tell you that what we're interested in and a huge reason why we do any of this work at all is because we value sacred community. 
we have lived and experienced the value of sacred community. Our long game, this is what Matt says, our long game is to still be enjoying a whiskey and conversation on each other's porches 20 years from now. We want to see and be seen, know and be known, love and be loved. We know the spiritual value of friendship. And while we're at it, we've all got to work at something because we're human beings and that's what we do. So we may as well work at peace on earth and we may as well do it in community together. So we're trying to practice what we preach on this. As a precursor to sacred community, we're trying not to make an enemy of you if we disagree with about something. Now, I wanna add, a, I wanna just put in a little caveat that I'll say this. Whatever you want to think or believe is fine and welcome, as long as your thinking and believing is not harming another person in our community. We would also prefer that your beliefs not be harming you yourself. But if and when we discern that someone's beliefs are harming another person or group, that's when we'll confront them. Because that's, look, we don't, we absolutely don't want to give passes to abuse, and we are doing our damnedest to, pre to prevent harm and to not perpetuate harm. So if you're ever wondering, like, where do Matt and Aurelia and Fran get gatekeepy? Gatekeepy, it's in defense of vulnerable people, okay? Beyond that, we have a fair amount of diversity in terms of what people think and how they approach life around here, and that's how we like it. We aren't here to tell you what to think, now, I'm happy to share what I think, which is what I'm doing now. I'm sharing what I think about sacred community and you can take it or leave it because no one is trying to put a noose around your neck. <laughs> Friends, this is why peace will never be large because we're not interested in trying to put a hard sell on anyone and we have zero interest in roping unwilling people into our community. If you're here, it's because you wanna be here. You choose to bring your own presence. We welcome you. People ask us, how do I become a member? And we say, do you think you're a member? Do you feel connected and committed in some way to the well-being of this community? Do you want to contribute to the work you, that we're doing? You're the decider of that. We're not really paying much attention to the quantity of people coming through here, with the exception of just having to make practical and logistical decisions. We are paying attention to the quality of relationships we're creating space for, the quality of work we're doing, the spiritual, physical, emotional, mental well-being of actual people in the community. I don't know about you, but I know I need sacred community. Left to my own devices, I am a fairly shy and introverted person. I don't easily make friends. I don't open up to people readily. And I'm really good at kind of living in my own world. But I have developed a very strong value for caring for other people and being a part of a community that cares for me. Studies show, friends, studies show that people who have community are more healthy, live longer, have less difficulty with mental illness, and recover from trauma better. There's a whole body of scientific evidence in the fields of psychology and sociology that bears witness to the fact that long-term community building pays dividends in terms of people's overall health and longevity. 
We humans are social animals and we need one another to be healthy and happy for the long haul. But it's hard work because other people are always mirroring back to us our traumas and our foibles and our ego triggers and traps. In fact, I would suggest that most of the maturing we ever do in this life has its beginnings in our relationships. Look back on your life and think about the times that you've experienced the most growth. Was it because you went through something hard in one of your primary relationships? Was it because you lost a relationship? Was it because you had a conflict with someone or because you began a a relationship with someone new who challenged you in different ways? Was it because someone irritated you so badly that you were forced to see yourself? Seriously, where does the growth happen in your life? I challenge you this week to reflect on your life and observe where the periods of intense growth happened and what catalyzed those. And I betcha it has something to do with relationships and community. Relationships will be, I dare say, some of the hardest work of your life. People are annoying. We're judgmental and self-centered and we say the wrong things and we have traumas and unhealed wounds. And we're all a bit confused sometimes about why we're here in a meat suit made of stardust on a spinning blue planet with nearly 8 billion friends who are mostly just as confused. And forgiveness is a really hard but vital skill to learn. It's hard. Teilhard de Chardin says, we are not human beings trying to have a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings here having a human experience and it's freaking confusing and annoying sometimes, right? But it's also deeply and profoundly beautiful. And if we can build the kind of faith community in which we consistently help each other to see the beauty and appreciate the good and practice gratitude and share what we've been given access to as we learned about the first Jesus following church in the book of Acts. Well, that seems worthwhile to me because we're here in duality where we get a mix of joy and pain, of tragedy and comedy. And we may as well lean on what's true and beautiful and learn from it. And the best way we can do that is to help be each other's teacher. Jesus tells Bartimaeus in today's gospel reading, get up, your faith has made you well. And that is what we're trying to do. We're trying to cultivate a faith that makes us well, a faith community that heals us. Everyone is struggling. Everyone you know is struggling somehow. You are not alone in your struggle. So what if by being in healthy community, we can make the struggle incrementally less hard? What if we can help each other learn to laugh in the midst of it? What if, wonder of wonders, we could master the art of bearing witness to one another in struggle? 
I think that's what salvation is, a reprieve from existential loneliness and a waking up to the interconnectedness of all beings. If we dig into the stories, we can see that Jesus's concept of salvation is not only individual. He does heal individuals like Bartimaeus, but he thinks bigger. According to him, salvation is collectively liberative. If the kingdom of God is really as big and welcoming and abundant as Jesus seems to think it is, then it is salvation indeed. And if we choose to spend our lives isolated or walled up from trusted community, we can never understand in any real or deep way the work that Christ embodied, which was from the outset meant to be unifying and ego transcending and communal, universal even. We can't understand the love without each other. The greatest refinements of our lives will happen in the context of relationships. But beyond that, the greatest fun of our lives and the pivotal experiences of love and the joy of sharing stories and marking important moments with shared ceremony, etc., will happen in the context of relationships. On the night before the crucifixion, Jesus prays in Gethsemane that we will be cured of our existential loneliness, that we'll wake up, become conscious of the oneness. That's in John 17, if you want to check me, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And a few, a few chapters that before that in John 13, he says that we'll be known as Christ followers by our love for one another. In other words, when we wake up from the dream of separation and realize that we are like drops of water in an ocean, we will be flooded with love for the ocean. A huge part of this spiritual journey, as I have witnessed and experienced it, is waking up from the illusion of separation. Father Rohr says that religion at its best helps people bring divine love into consciousness, into focus. And that's what all this is meant to do. All the liturgy, all the ritual, all the meetings and groups and activities and reading and singing and book clubs, etc. It's all meant to help us become more aware of the vast love that we each are already inherently part of, and that is our true home. Ram Das said, we are all just walking each other home. In sacred community, friends, we are walking each other home. Amen.